Welcome to Newborn News, a podcast where we discuss educational topics for medical professionals who care for newborns. I'm your host, Dr. Nita Goley, a pediatrician in the UT Southwestern Newborn Nursery. Welcome back to the podcast. In today's episode, we will be discussing hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, or HIE. We are recording remotely due to the ongoing COVID pandemic. We are joined today by Dr. Lena Shalak, neonatologist, professor of pediatrics and psychiatry at UT Southwestern, director of the UT Southwestern Neurological Neonatal Intensive Care Unit, or the NeuroNICU program, and co-director of the Fetal and Neonatal Neurology Fellowship Program. Her research expertise includes neonatal brain injury prevention, biomarkers of asphyxia, and mild HIE. She is an NIH-funded researcher, NIH-chartered study reviewer, and serves on the editorial board of several journals. She sits on the executive council for multiple societies, including the Society for Pediatric Research, American Pediatric Society, Perinatal Research Society, International Perinatal Collegium, and is a co-chair of research in the Newborn Brain Society. Good morning. Hi, Dr. Shellock. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, good morning. I'm happy and excited to be here talking about my favorite topic, you know, and hopefully somebody... uh, virtually out there would uh, would um, enjoy it or uh, learn something new. Yes, I am sure. Um, so let's go ahead and get started. So what is hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy and how common is it? Okay. So I always like to start with the definition because the name is a little bizarre, hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, and it has sometimes people confused. If we think about it, um, hypoxia is low oxygenation to a tissue. Ischemia is low blood flow to a tissue. And encephalopathy is what results when you have hypoxia and ischemia. So really, it's a very technical term that that is trying to summarize uh, an interruption in uh, blood flow and oxygenation um, to the brain. And it usually happens uh, at the level of the placenta and around the time of birth. Uh, and the AAP has really tried to make it a very specific diagnosis, thereby, um, because there are other reasons why an infant could be um, having uh, things like cerebral palsy. So um, hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy and cerebral palsy are not equivalent. Uh, what happens around the term of birth that is related to low blood flow, low oxygenation, and the resulting encephalopathy is what we call HIE. And we usually have other organs also involved. We have an MRI that supports this diagnosis. We have an acute perinatal event that supports the story. And this is usually what makes the combination of a hypoxic ischemic uh, encephalopathy. As to how common it is, um, I mean, it affects millions every year, one million in the U.S. every year in um, about four million worldwide. So the worldwide burden is even uh, more important. Uh, uh, but here even, um, it, it's supposed to be a never event, uh, but, but, but really there are a combination of factors that lead to complications around the time of birth. 
And the complications uh, and the outcomes are pretty devastating. I mean, the majority of these infants would have death and disability as an outcome when I started training. That was years ago. And now we're doing a little better, but we're still having a devastating condition with uh, extremely uh, concerning uh, consequences if uh, not addressed and recognized immediately after birth. Please, can you review for us the pathophysiology of HIE? Sure. So the good news is that um, we have a fetal adaptive mechanism. So not every time there is a cord around the neck, we're going to have somebody come out with uh, asphyxia that, or somebody has meconium and then they have asphyxia. That's the good news. We, we have our own body. We have our own ability to uh, um, adjust. So, for example, uh, if there is a brief insult right around the time of birth, we could still have redistribution of the cardiac output and uh, blood flow is going to be uh, going to the key organs and the brain and the heart and the adrenals are our key organs. Uh, and it's going to be at the expense of the uh, periphery organs like a kidney or a skin. Important, but not that important when you're trying to survive. And, and uh, this is how a lot of these infants uh, do well. Only when we have exhausted our ability to uh, maintain uh, the autoregulation intact, then with a very severe insult, then we start to see uh, the problems that occur with energy failure. And um, at, at a simple level, what happens is your brain um, is having the effect of the low uh, oxygen and the low glucose and the low perfusion. So it starts to make uh, a... Um, a cascade of excitotoxic uh, events, uh, and that basically sends the brain into secondary energy failure. And really, it's the extent of this secondary energy failure that dictates outcome. Um, and there is a very tiny window between the primary insult and the secondary energy failure where one could still change the course or intervene. The, the best analogy I give is uh, once you push on, a, on, a, on that certain pathway, it is very hard to reverse. And, and uh, for the parents, we give the analogy of um, when you have like a hurricane, for example, when Hurricane Katrina hit. What killed people the most was the flooding. The, the levees break, the flooding is what killed people over weeks to months after that uh, hurricane. And it's the same with HIE. So the original insult is perhaps a cord around the neck or a placental problem or something that happens around the time of birth. Even when you bring the baby out and you give them the best resuscitation possible, you provide them with oxygen, their heart rate picks up, they look great. That secondary cascade of event or reperfusion energy is cerebral perfusion, uh, flooding the brain with uh, mediators that cause inflammation and cell death. And uh, this is what we try to um, overcome and uh, prevent before it happens when we try to recognize these infants early on. And I know you did just mention um, potential insults being the cord wrapped around the neck or placental problems. What specifically are some other primary insults that can lead to this? So um, it could be, uh, for example, the placenta detaches. Um, so you have a uh, placental uh, uh, abruption. The placenta has bled significantly and uh, is not perfusing the infant anymore. You could have abnormal insertions. 
You could have maternal conditions uh, leading to poor blood flow through that placenta. Uh, you could have uh, a, a significant uh, obstruction with meconium and the baby's not breathing and then the lungs are not operating properly. Um, and then uh, you could have infections um, that could be risk factors. You could have acute insults like the one I mentioned. So uh, a uh, um, basically, a uterine rupture is a, an acute catastrophic event, or you could have more subtle acute on chronic with the um, inflammation, infection pathways, or maternal factors and things like that that could be risk factors. What's important to, to mention here is just because the risk factors, one of them by itself is not going to cause HIE. So they, you just you're you're looking for for um, uh, risk factors. You want to make sure you have a provider at that delivery. Uh, but it because of the ability of our body to adapt and uh, autoregulate, uh, we we're going to compensate until a certain point. So only with those prolonged or severe insults, uh, then we're going to have to uh, start seeing the problems. So how would we start seeing the problem? How do we okay. expect babies um, with HIE to present after birth? Yes. So, so the presentation is, is very important, right? And recognizing this baby uh, after birth is going to be very important. The first uh, kind of the history telling, right? So some, one of the risk factors that we've mentioned or more, the, the need of resuscitation and the low APGAR scores are also other indicator. So we lump all of these under a history of an acute perinatal event, right? But the most sensitive, somebody who's needing um, to be uh, ventilated or, or uh, cannot breathe at birth, uh, you know that this baby is, is having a risk factor. But really, um, the, the, the key trigger here is uh, we have the ability to do cold blood gases, right? And this tells us if your tissue is hypoxic and, and if your blood flow is impaired, uh, then you're going to have acidosis. And so the metabolic acidosis, uh, the information that we gain from that cold blood gas, specifically that base deficit, is even more sensitive than the pH. The pH is important, but the base deficit has been absolutely correlated with outcomes. Uh, a cutoff of 16 base deficits or more uh, has been uh, the most sensitive. Similar with pH, a pH under 7.15. Most of us have a normal body pH, or most babies, 7.3, 7.25, 7.35. If the pH is under 7.15 and a critical severe fetal acidemia is a pH under 7, then you know whether it's a cord blood gas or whether it's the first gas that you get immediately after birth in a baby that had this acute history, this tells us that, okay, we've got a major player here, they're at risk. So that's the first step. I call it the biochemical screening, kind of, the history and the fetal acidosis. The confirmation comes with a detailed neurological examination. And uh, the encephalopathy has been beautifully and elegantly described by Dr. Sarnet and Sarnet. It was a pathologist and a neuro neurologist in the 70s. They, they studied these infants uh, that had these fetal acidosis and uh, criteria that we talked about first. And they're like, they go through steps in evolution. Their neurological exam is affected. And then it starts with, irritability, uh, jitteriness, uh, hyperreflexia, 
uh, and, and where your sympathetic system is overtly activated. These infants are jittery. Uh, some of them might have seizure, but really when they progress to a more moderate stage, then their parasympathetic system takes over. And now they're lethargic when you look at their level of consciousness, their activity is depressed, their tone is low, they're not wanting to move or eat or suck or swallow, uh, and their EEGs or their um, sometimes clinical uh, seizures are very, very, very obvious. And that is a stage that is really concerning. Uh, and, uh, and in some babies, it progresses to a very severe stage where really they're not doing anything. They're stuporous, they have no activity, their EEG so shows no electrical activity. So the baby's not moving, stuporous, no reflexes, flaccid tone. Uh, even the EEG does not show electrical activity, so absence of electrical activity. Uh, luckily for us, we do not see that severe stage anymore. We got better at recognizing early on, interfering early on, um, and uh, the severe cases have come less and less and less as time goes by from that original description in the 70s. But really, uh, it, the, the, the point to make here, it is important to recognize those infants based on risk factors of acute distress, needing resuscitation, low APCAR scores, meconium, placental problems, and evidence of fetal acidosis. And uh, the critical uh, cutoffs here are 7 for severe fetal acidemia, 4-PH, and 7.15 uh, as I'm, I'm going to keep an eye on that baby. And then for base deficit, 16 uh, and more is considered to be a significant base deficit. Uh, and those infants, uh, we need to keep a close eye on their detailed examination to see if they have any evidence of encephalopathy according to those uh, SARNAT stages. So a detailed neurological exam is recommended and uh, a timely exam is recommended because really our ability to intervene, if anything, uh, is limited by that reperfusion injury that happens, that defines the outcomes. So we're trying to catch them before they go into secondary energy failure uh, and reperfusion injury. How do you define low APGAR scores? Okay, so it's a good point. Uh, the uh, Really, the AAP definition is, is very rigid in these cases in that you have APGAR scores uh, at... Uh, uh, one and five uh, minutes that are uh, basically under five. Think of APGAR scores as under five at five minutes as I'm very concerned about that baby. Um, and the, the issue is we've come better and better at resuscitation. And so even with the most severe cases, if we intubate promptly, uh, we're going to have a, a decent APCAR score but on lots of support. So to me, the need of resuscitation, the need of intubation um, kind of is, is even more of an important indicator than APCAR scores because you could have a, a, bad, a good APCAR score on lots of support. Uh, that baby is still at risk, obviously. And then at the same time, we have babies that have lower APCAR scores that have an, an intact autoregulation and they do well. Mm -hmm. So the APCAR scores by itself is not that helpful. It's with the history. And then with the cord gas, how are we able to assess whether the cord gas is a fetal sample or maternal blood sample? Good point. So uh, the best thing to look at is the uh, PO2. 
and um, that kind of tells you fetuses are used to a relatively hypoxic environment. So if you have a PaO2 on that blood gas that is, um, let's say, above 50, you're like, um, that's mom, it's not the baby. Uh, and, and even that blood gas is not completely useless. The base deficit, I mean, if that mom is having a significant metabolic acidosis, I bet you that baby's at risk too. But but then you can bet your hat on it and, and put your money uh uh, on betting on that, then I would recommend repeating. So it's not the end of the world if you have a contaminated sample or a mixed. Sometimes we have a mixed, you know. I mean, people are trying to um, get the uh, arterial, the fetus, but, but then they get the mom. And so in that case, the the best way to do it would be to repeat an arterial sample from the baby after birth. And if they're really uh, depressed and asphyxiated, you will be able to tell. It would still be there. Mm-hmm. So if we do have a baby with the perinatal insult, um, with the fetal acidosis on cord gas, with the abnormal um, exam after birth, is there a specific treatment um, and how does it work? Okay, so if you ask me that question 20 years ago, I'd say, well, um, well, that, that's when I started my journey and my training. We had nothing to do but supportive care. So we counseled the parents. We told them the majority of the babies are going to be dead or disabled. And uh, we're treating the seizures aggressively. We're making sure that sugar and oxygen now are um, restored. Um, and, and that was it. But luckily, uh, we've come a long way. And, and that's what makes this field uh, so exciting. In a condition that in the past we thought was not modifiable after birth, it was fixed and dictated by what happened before birth, uh, we discovered that there, that we can make a difference by a selective uh, and uh, a strategy, neuroprotective strategy, and that is hypothermia. And if you go through the literature, the story of how we started to cool those infants is actually fascinating. It started with astute observations by desperate physicians when their babies were not breathing and and were born with no heart rate that they would ask their nurses to bring them buckets of ice. They'd put those babies in buckets of ice, and some of them did breathe. That was in the 60s. And... um, then they started to get a little bit more and more organized. They started showering their heads with uh, in the delivery room uh, and re- re- recording their observations and noticing that the mortality was not 100%, and somehow the cold environment was helping. And, of course, you know, that was not the way to... Um, to do a therapy by just putting somebody in a bucket of ice. But we did the proper uh, uh, testing on elegant animal studies, so piglet studies, sheep studies. And when I came to UT, actually, part of the reason what I came for was to look at the piglet asphyxia model when we were trying to study in the 80s and 90s how hypothermia works by creating different gradients in the brain. And, um, and, and all those studies uh, done uh, uh, internationally, whether in the U.S. or internationally, in different uh, models confirmed that temperature regulation after an asphyxial insult is the most important predictor of outcome. And actually, uh, kind of like a drug, a temperature range of 33 to 34 uh, affords the most neuroprotection. 
and uh, that you need to do it uh, for a 72 hours duration uh, to get the maximum benefit. And then those studies translated into the clinical randomized trials, and uh, we were part of those trials here at UT Southwestern uh, at Portland, and uh, the uh, NICHD uh, uh, trial was published uh, in uh, 2005, and it showed that uh, you can uh, improve outcomes in one out of six babies that you treat and you've uh, prevented uh, death and disability in an additional 25%. So that was quite remarkable. And the European uh, trials were coming out at the same time, showing the same findings, and, and uh, Australian trials. And, and uh, all of a sudden, uh, we realized that the years of translational uh, models have paid off, and that hypothermia works in multiple ways. It's not working on one pathway. It's working on basically uh, slowing down the metabolism, the demands, the cerebral blood flow, and preventing this reperfusion injury, preventing the uh, reduction in the acute phase of the free radicals and mitochondrial damage uh, and apoptosis and inflammation in this secondary phase of injury, uh, and uh, really uh, also, it turns out, also working on a tertiary phase of injury where uh, you could have also all this uh, cascade of reperfusion injury that we've talked about. So uh, it works multiple pathways, and it, it, uh, the results were um, a meta-analysis showing that thousands of infants uh, in these uh, large randomized studies um, that showed reduction of mortality, reduction of disability. So it's not that you're uh, just uh, uh, seeing less disability, less disability, less mortality, uh, and uh, improved outcomes on those infants. And that really gave us hope that we could modify these outcomes with a specific targeted neuroprotective therapy. The key, though, is early uh, intervention. So time is brain. We got to get to the to the brain before it floods, uh, and you have the secondary uh, cascade of events and reperfusion injury, and, and early recognition based on the uh, risk factors and the fetal acidosis and the uh, abnormal examination and encephalopathy. The trials included those with moderate and severe. Um, uh, or second, stage two or three of the SONAT exam with those risk factors and showed the benefits. So those are the infants that we have now is standard of care approved therapy uh, that um, can improve their outcomes. Are there any complications of therapeutic hypothermia that we should be aware of or anything that needs to be monitored while the babies are get re okay, receiving this treatment? Okay, so it's a good point to, to think about it. Uh, the, um, the, the hypothermia trials showed us that it is safe, uh, but you need to keep a close eye on temperature. So think of temperature as a drug, right? So if we do that, then, uh, then we have to continuously monitor the temperature because overshooting, uh, sometimes the blanket uh, can malfunction. And if you overshoot, then you end up having problems because in this case, uh, you would have be exposing the baby to uh, uh, heat and, and heat causes the opposite of hypothermia, so you'd be harming someone, right? So you need to continuously monitor the temperature to avoid overshooting and also to avoid undershooting. Babies tolerate a temperature of 33.5. That's the optimal neuroprotection goal. 33 to 34 is acceptable. 
anything under, uh, we've tried it. We've done a, st- a uh, study with a temperature of 32 degrees Celsius. These babies were having more uh, risk factors. They were having more uh, pulmonary hypertension, worsening of that, needing uh, nitric oxide. So that's a problem. Uh, and um, even lower temperature would cause uh, depression of the EEG. So it's, it's a critical cutoff. It, think of it as temperature is a drug or a something that you use for treatment, and it needs to be continuously monitored. Uh, but the trial showed that it was safe. It didn't make um, any of their uh, other uh, uh, physiological or other indexes um, uh, any worse. Uh, and um, babies have pulmonary hypertension from asphyxia. Uh, it's not a contraindication to cool them. You just have to be more careful. Um, uh, one thing uh, in some of the studies, uh, the platelet count tended to be a little lower, uh, but it didn't affect uh, their ability to uh, um, uh, bleed. Basically, again, asphyxia is a multiple organ, so you could have the IC from asphyxia itself. It's not going to be from the cooling therapy itself. Um, so although it, it has been shown to be very safe, um, I would not say uh, let's do hypothermia on everybody because uh, you got to think about it this way. It's a three-day duration of cooling. So during this time, the babies are not able to bond or to be with their parents. They are under the blanket. Uh, they uh, are not eating during that time. Um, they, some of them, a very small percentage might be having shivering from the blanket, uh, very rarely so because of the fat distribution. But for those, they might need sedation. Um, and, and the mom is not able to do breastfeeding. So all this, I mean, it's a therapy, and, and the, the risks definitely uh, are minimum compared to the benefit of uh, preventing brain damage. But, but it's, it's not something that you want to do to anybody uh, uh, whether they have HIE or not because uh, uh, because of these risk factors. And usually uh, during the therapy, we're going to be putting umbilical lines because those infants, you cannot, um, it's not easy to draw blood from them and they can't feed, so you have to have a, a way to do that. Their pulse ox might not pick up very well. You might have to put it uh, on their ear or more centrally uh, because their fingers are uh, uh, not, uh, you know, are cold and they're not getting the best um uh, signal uh, on those measures. So um, it is an important therapy, but, but it, it comes with uh, importance of monitoring um, uh, to do it properly. What are the long-term outcomes for babies with HIE? So with the implementation of the hypothermia within the first six hours after birth and early recognition, we have been able to uh, drastically improve outcomes. So now we have about, uh, in the recent cohorts, we have about um, um, 35 to 40 percent uh, only uh, that are having uh, abnormal outcomes with their baby scores at two years. And that's like the first time we have a, um, the, the, the viewpoint of screening those infants. Uh, we're not seeing death as much. It's really rare. It's under 10 percent. And the reason is we don't see as much severe disability. And so now the uh, uh, more than half of these infants are doing just fine and living a beautiful life, uh, and we could tell that to their parents. Uh, the Usually what I say is if we have a normal MRI, then it's very reassuring. But seeing the infant at one year and two years is very important. 
to look for these, uh, look for uh, hearing screening, uh, uh, vision screening, do the baby examination. Uh, and we've uh, followed up these infants into six years and seven years now uh, from the earlier trials, and they seem to be having these sustained benefits. And I want to emphasize here the importance of the family uh, environment, because a lot of the things that we do in the NICU are important, but the ability to do uh, PT, OT, the, the ability of the parents uh, to help these infants is also very important. So the environment is very important when it comes to uh, these uh, children reaching their full potential. And now we tend to involve the parents with our um, new uh, strategies for therapies and things like that, because again, they play a very important role. And it's, it's a humbling thing but an important thing for a uh, pediatrician and a neonatologist to recognize. And you mentioned in the beginning um, when we were t- talking that HIE is not the same as cerebral palsy. Um, but is there a relationship between the two? Or can you clarify yes. that for us? The, the relationship is that some of the cases of cerebral palsy uh, are related to HIE. That's all what there is to it. CP is an endpoint. So these infants are seen by neurology clinics and they have motor uh, uh, impairments. And it could be from metabolic disorders, it could be from strokes, it could be from anything else, but it or could be from genetics malformation, but it also could be from HIE. That is all what there is to it. Okay. And then the, the benefit with HIE is uh, you know it right around the time of birth, right away when it happens. For those other categories, some of them are not diagnosed till later on. And right now, are there any new directions in evaluation or treatment of HIE that we should be aware of? Yes, I think that's the exciting part, and, and that's why I do what I do for a living. Uh, it's uh, being part of those early trials and recognizing that we can make a difference we want to make a better difference. And, uh, and there are a couple of things that I'm excited to talk to you guys about. Uh, the first is uh, widening the strategy to seeing the application uh, in uh, more patients. And uh, that is because the early trials were the tip of the iceberg. They focused on the most sick, moderate and severe. Uh, and they focused on only the term infants because we, they really wanted to, to show proof of benefit. Can we make a difference, right? And now that we know that we can, we're studying infants that uh, are late preterm, so the 33 to 35 weeks. We've just completed the NICHD study, uh, and hopefully the results are going to be coming out in the coming uh, uh, two years because we're one or two years. We have to wait for them to complete their two years' outcomes to show that it's safe to include infants that are 33 to 35 weeks uh, because, you know, with extreme preterm infants, you worry about hypothermia, cold stress, and mortality and sepsis from that. But with the late preterm, you could still get the benefits, hopefully, without any of the side effects. So this is a patient population that hopefully we're going to be able to offer cooling to in the immediate future. Another also study that the NICHD uh, um, completed was the the infants that do not present in the first six hours. So what if somebody looks good in the first six hours and then they progress and they get worse at eight hours or they transferred from somewhere between six and 24 hours? Is this too late or not? And that study has been published uh, and 
uh, that study showed that you don't get the major benefit that you get with the early cooling, so you should still put all your efforts on recognizing infants before the first six hours. But cooling the, the late presenters between six and 24 hours is better than nothing. So if you're flipping a coin, it's 75% likely to help rather than just a 50-50. And it's a smaller effect, but it's still important. So uh, keeping an eye for the progression of the encephalopathy and on doing serial exams is important for those babies. Uh, And uh, lastly, the infants that we so-called mild HIE, Um, This is a subject dear to my heart uh, because we have been able to improve the definition of that. It used to be a black box. We just only counted those with moderate and severe. But we have uh, refined the definition for mild HIE, and we have done an international uh, collaborative study where we were able to find that those with so-called mild HIE in the first six hours, it's very difficult to sort them out. They're not really that mild. Half of them can have abnormal short-term outcome, and about uh, 25% of them can have uh, abnormal outcomes at two years uh, and with their baby scores. And these are the infants now that we're targeting uh, in uh, effectiveness studies to see that hypothermia can make a difference for those babies. Uh, and so this is... Um, Uh, what I call the wider net strategy for offering hypothermia to more patients uh, uh, with uh, uh, directed studies at that. Now that we know from the early trials that it is not harmful and there are no side effects if you do it uh, within the exact protocols. But there is also a second strategy called the strategy of uh, combination or cocktails on ice, so to speak. So if hypothermia is good, we could add something to it. And the front runners for that uh, is erythropoietin. And uh, we have just been part of a large uh, uh, randomized trial called HEAL for high-dose erythropoietin for asphyxia and encephalopathy uh, with uh, the uh, uh, APIs at uh, uh, Seattle and UCSF and the other 14 uh, centers, and uh, this study has been completed, and the infants are completing their two-year outcomes as we speak. And so within this year, we should have hopefully uh, evidence that tells us whether we could further improve outcomes by giving multiple doses of erythropoietin in that first week of life in addition to cooling. And the benefit is it works like hypothermia on multiple pathways, Uh, decreasing inflammation and apoptosis, and it also works on the tertiary phase of injury. So it helps with brain repair uh, and neurogenesis and oligodendrogenesis. So uh, that is a very exciting uh, uh, study that um, the coming year, hopefully, we can have uh, additional uh, talks targeted just on that. And another exciting um, area of research is the infusion of autologous cord blood cells. The group in Duke is doing uh, superb studies, and also uh, it looks very promising. Uh, and and with these positive notes, uh, I kind of like to uh, um, hope that we can we can make. Uh, the outcomes for all the babies be good in the near future with all these targeted approaches. And I'd like to end on a positive note. Yeah, lots to look forward to. Excellent. Anything else that we forgot to talk about? One more thing. Um, So to end the episode today, do you have any advice for our listeners while they take care of newborns? 
I think I would like to remind everybody that um, time is brain when it comes to HIE. And so uh, keep a critical uh, mind when you have uh, infants that are not... uh, uh, that are needing resuscitation, that have an acute perinatal event, make sure you look for that cord blood gas uh, and make sure you do a detailed examination and make sure you do serial examinations because it's a dynamic evolution uh, of uh, uh, changes after birth That uh, and, and remembering uh, that they have th- we have therapies now, so hypothermia is one. Uh, we're going to hear more about the exciting uh, new studies uh, regarding EPO and uh, uh, stem cells, uh, and um, basically uh, keeping an eye on the monitoring also, uh, remembering to send the placenta for pathology uh, and uh, um, sending the babies for referral or uh, for a provider who could do a detailed exam if you are in doubt uh, that they have HIE. Thanks again for joining us today, Dr. Shillock. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Newborn News. We hope you join us next time. If you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. If you have questions, comments, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes, please email me at newbornnews at utsouthwestern.edu. As a reminder, this content is educational and is not meant to be used as medical advice. Views or opinions expressed in this podcast are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the university.